We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Danny Dicchio. Danny played in the Premier League with QPR and Sunderland. He also played in the MLS with Toronto FC. And then in between, he had a spell in Serie A with Sampdoria when the Italian League was the league to be in uh, mid-90s. So he's, he's now based in Toronto, uh, a legend there obviously as he scored their first MLS goal he was an assistant with the, the MLS team there and now he's moved on to the coaching side with the U19s so I was keen to get him on wide range of experiences in the game uh, the managers he's played with I'll name you a few Peter Reid Jerry Francis Dennis Wise Gary Megson Billy Davis and Ray Wilkins who sadly passed away couple of weeks ago so I was I was really really keen to get his thoughts on a couple of those those managers and and how they worked and some of them were old school and some of them work in different ways and and his his insight is absolutely brilliant so how those coaches have influenced him as a coach is something that the modern soccer coach is all about where it's like well where did you get your philosophy from and then how much of your personality is then added to that there and, and Danny does a great job in this podcast with kind of given his views on the game you can see that he's very very passionate about certain aspects of it and we get into other aspects like heading as well and youth development so I had a lot of fun with this here uh, hope you enjoy it and thanks so much to Danny for for getting involved here he is Danny thanks so much for joining me this morning for the modern soccer coach podcast no worries thanks for having me on Gary you went through the youth system at QPR as a youngster and then went on to make 75 appearances for the club in the yes. Premier League. We're now in an era where it's very, very difficult, both in the UK and in the United States, to produce homegrown players. From your experience, how did youth coaches help you achieve that? Um, you know, I, I think back in the day, especially growing up in the UK, the hunger to be a professional football player was a lot higher than, than what it is now and for different reasons. I think growing up playing football, the love of the game was much stronger and I think now with with younger players trying to grow up through the systems, their their heart might not be in love with the game but they see a, a different pathway where they can either earn better money or drive flasher cars or just be a bigger symbol in life rather than you know having the actual love of the game and I think that's crucial for me when I was growing up it wasn't even a matter of, of thinking about being a professional player at a younger stage it was a matter of I, I just loved playing the game and from a young young age either playing with my, my friends at school or my, my friends from around my neighborhood and then my club team my youth club team that I played for throughout my days even when I was at QPR as a young player 
we just there was just a genuine love to go out and, and play the game, and I, I feel the younger generation have kind of lost that. Not only because of not because of their fault, but because of how kind of rigid and it's, it's strange to set up now when I, I look at younger academies and how rigid it is and how organised it is, and, and they've taken away, I think, a lot of the freedom of, of growing up as a younger player. We we think about that era of growing up and playing, especially in the UK, where I would my background as well. There was so much passion in the game, yes, and, and there was so many characters, especially in that era of Premier League football. That the mid nineties is just like it just gets people my age get excited when you think of those the people and and what they were about. Um, do you think that we're just not producing as many characters because of society, or do you think it's it's social media, or or what's your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. I had this uh, this talk on Premier League TV the other day, and they asked me a similar question. And, and I said, when you had characters growing up within within your club, that whether you're at a professional club or even at a semi-pro club or even your your local club, there were certain players that had been there a long time, Gary. You know, so that they were they were part of the the, the history, the establishment, and even at QPR, we had the. the the great Alan McDonald, who was a fantastic character back in the day, our captain at QPR that kept all our, our, us younger players on tap, but his banter was great. And these guys had been at the clubs for a long, long time, so the younger players respected them. But I, I don't really see that at, at football clubs anymore. You know, it's such a uh, a clinical business now where coaches are looking out for their jobs and they're, they're having to get results as quickly as possible. You don't see many long-term coaches in, in in their roles anymore and, and that's the same for players as well you go back to like the likes of your John Terry or Stevie Gerrard I think they'll be the the last of a long line of of players from the the, the 2000s and late 90s where players played at clubs for a long time and and those were the real characters within the club and, and kept everyone on their toes as well just on Alan McDonald there he he came to he was an Ireland man so he came to yeah. my my kids camps when I was, say I was 10 or 11, I don't know what age it was. And I remember two things. Number one, that he was his the, the presence of his character. And number two, that he was smoking a cigarette during it. <laughs> and I'm like, do you think yeah. we've just gone over on like, are we trying to create perfect players, perfect coaches, perfect people? Like not one person complained, not one parent complained. Well, that's, that's actually funny you say that because I remember my first kind of game with the first team and I, I was a sub and... We came in at half time, and 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 I think it was uh, we were we were losing one nil, and I, I kind of went into the to the washrooms, and there was a there was a, a cloud of smoke coming from one of the cubicles, and I was like, is, is there a fire or someone something's caught fire in, in one of the toilets, and then out pops uh, Alan McDonald just stubbing out his cigarette, and this was at half time, and and I remember Trevor Sinclair looking at me laughing and goes, oh that's that's Big Macca, he does that every half time. I couldn't believe it at the time, but it, I go on to even go into Italy and, and being at the, the dinner table for the first time when I'd signed as a young player at Sampdoria and the the amount of players that smoked and that had wine or beer at the table, it was it was really puzzling for me because as a young player growing up, you're, you're kind of told to, to stray away from that stuff, but Again, that's what these characters, these these older pros were used to. They were used to that. They, they played it a long, long time and they continued with their habits, Gary. So I think we're trying, as you said, trying to create the perfect 
player and with all the sports science and, and kind of education that we're getting now, which helps performances, so, so-called making your performance that, that extra inch better, which I, I totally agree with as well. Uh, I think we're trying to create the perfect player, but players maybe without characters as well. Talk about culture, it's a big buzzword. Nobody uses it more than me today, but in yeah. terms of like, when you're when you're trying to build a culture, when you're trying to build a team, you can't build a team without characters or humor or people making people laugh, can you? Of course, and I think that that's for for any team sports. You know, Gary, I think we know in soccer that the, the locker room, the changing room, is a, is a big factor because you have players on the field for literally an hour and a half to two hours per day. But it's what goes on in the gym, um, what goes on in the locker room, the changing room the social side of things that really builds a team. And for me, you can't manufacture a culture. You have to slowly kind of build that. And that comes from within the team spirit. I really do believe that. And if you have certain characters, good or bad, you can have some bad characters that actually help with the actual team spirit as well through through bad experiences. Then I think that's how you, you kind of look at your team. And normally, to be quite honest, I'm working in, in youth football for like eight years now. It's normally those characters that have a little bit of edge or a little bit different that are the game changers as well, Gary. Mm. Well, Michael Jordan has a reputation for being a really, really tough personality. Yes. And and being harsh on teammates. You know, growing up again in that era where, you know, you mentioned the banter and and there's a good side of that, probably coming in every day and, and laughing. There was probably also a side of it where you would be torn to shreds. Yes. Did that build character? Was that difficult? Well, especially as a younger player, I think it kind of keeps you on your toes and kind of puts you in your place. And I go back to like Alan McDonald and the late Ray Wilkins and, and Les Ferdinand, guys that I, I grew up kind of watching, but slowly kind of progressed into being one of their teammates as well. And, and I remember one of the first things Alan McDonald said when I, when I started training with the first team, and he said, you see how hard you've worked now, young boy, in, in getting here. He says, don't don't think about it anymore. He says, now you have to actually work twice as hard to stay here. He says, the first team coach is not even going to look at you for the first few months or so. He's just here. You're just a bit part player to keep the numbers up. He says, so you have to impress every day. You have to be consistent. You have to do your jobs on and off the field and, and be a, a, a member of this club and be a member of this team, but realize your place as well. And it was... It was really good pieces of information that kind of kept us younger players on our toes, but respected older guys like those. Mm. Let's talk about your move to Italy. Yes. What was the toughest transition at Sampdoria? Was it on the pitch or off the pitch? Off the pitch was was uh, was fine for me because we moved to a, a beautiful city, Genoa, um, which is in the north of Italy. My father's obviously Italian, so I spoke the language. Um my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, struggled with the language, but it was a very cosmopolitan city, um, and we, we really felt at ease there. It was more on the field where I'd actually signed for Sampdoria with the head coach being Sven Goran Eriksson, and unfortunately, a month after I'd signed, he'd, he'd moved on to Lazio, which was well, a big problem for me, for any players that he had actually signed. But now you're having a new head coach coming in and you're a younger player and you're trying to impose yourself on uh, an already good squad, by the way, that we had at Sampdoria. And we had an old Argentinian coach come in, uh, Monotti, who had actually won the World Cup with Argentina. 
and he came in and he, he wanted to mix things around and, and bring his own kind of players in and there was really no kind of pathway for me to get into the first team. I, I played a lot as a substitute, uh, but I wanted to play. I was still a young, young boy trying to learn my game. And it was a frustrating time uh, at times, to be quite honest, Gary, but I, I learned a hell of a lot um, how to look after yourself and just certain specifics as well in, in the athletic side of, of football that I'd never, ever done in England. Yeah, that's. I wanted to ask you about that there, the athletic, the physical work, because we talk about the Italians, you know, their reputation as being a tactical grab, grasp of the game. But when you talk or read about people that played in, in Serie A in the 80s or 90s, they're always talking about how difficult the physical training was. Yes. And the, the thing was as well, Gary, is that in England, when you were playing probably week week in, week out, sometimes you would play midweek. Um, you would only play, uh, train, sorry, uh, once a day, where in Italy it didn't matter. You, you trained at least two or three times a week doing double sessions. And I thought that was really interesting, but we would have specific sessions on plyos, dynamics, uh, coordination, uh, strength, including you know, the, the athletic side of things. And it was really interesting to me because it helped me kind of build uh, my younger body, where I still wasn't built into my frame, I was a tall body, but I still hadn't filled out yet, and it helped me a lot with my strength and also my uh, physical presence as well. Was that your first exposure to a gym or gym work? It, it wasn't even gym work, to be quite honest, Gary. We, we hardly ever touched a gym. It was all done on the field or to the side of the field, and it was a lot of hurdle work, a lot of mobility work, a lot of football specific work that we would do whether it be short sprints and I was used to a lot of endurance running in England where it was be monotonous running around a forest pre-season or around a track and we'd, we'd have a, a run at QPR under Jerry Francis which was called the box to box run and, and that was on a Tuesday we wouldn't even get the balls out but a lot of stuff in Italy was football specific and, and specific to the position you played in which I found really interesting. How much did the, the experience of moving away, how much did that strengthen you mentally, again, on, on and off the pitch? I think, it, again, it builds your character, it builds um, a little bit of strength and resistance. You're away from home, and I think you ask any young player when he moves away from home, whether it be in the UK and you're moving to a different city, you have to suddenly think on your feet and be more responsible. You don't have your family around you, and moving to a, a different country definitely did that for me, and... I think it was a, a stage of my life where I, I really matured in the sense that I didn't have friends around me. I had to sharpen up my Italian language even more. I had to think about off-the-field stuff, whether it be um, renting a house, getting a car, stuff that was kind of all looked after you when you were in England. And we, we really grew up not only uh, as an individual, but as a couple as well, me and my wife. And I go back to that time in Italy and I, and I actually wish I stayed there a little bit longer now because I think if I did uh, I would have played there for a couple more years maybe even longer and, and they didn't have many big target men around in those days and I think I look at teams now and the, the old school they, in Italy they call it the bomber was, was very much uh, looked at as a, a special weapon in those days and I wish I, I wish I would have been more patient and stayed out there a little bit longer. Mm. 
with it, with England's success and all these, you know, they're at the youth levels now, um, and the pathway being so difficult in Premier League squads, never mind Premier League teams. Would you yeah. re- would you recommend a similar experience for those type of players? I would, you know, I, I really, I think younger players, especially growing up in in the UK now, they kind of shy away from from moving out of England because they feel they're not going to get as noted or I don't know there's a, there's a weird kind of concept that moving to a different country and playing whether it be on loan or, or for a full kind of move that they're going to kind of go down the pecking order whether it be with a national team or they're not going to be in the, the public's eye anymore but I, I really think for a developmental side of things going to a different country whether it be Germany where we've seen uh, I think it was is it Sancho that's gone over there now Sancho what who's gone to Dortmund um, even Luckman from Everton has gone out to to Germany as well. To, to, I think he went to Leipzig, did he? Um, I think this is really beneficial for for a younger player to go out and and see a different way of football. And I definitely saw that in Italy. For me, playing there was so frustrating at times, but it was just seeing a different brand of football for me it was like a game of chess at times in Italy and teams would score one goal and the team that went up 1-0 would shut up shop and it would be so defensive minded where I was used to the Premier League where it was really gung-ho you attack we attack and I think again going back to the younger players if they can go out to to different countries and gain that valuable experience I think it's going to actually help with their game in the long run and their development. Peter Reid Sunderland a yes. reputation as one of the great man managers. I, I go back to the personalities and the characters. There's probably no no more bigger than Peter Reid. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how he did this on a daily basis? Well, for me, I think Peter Reid was was one of the best player managers that that I ever played for. He had a, a deep understanding of. Every individual on his team, he made it very personable to know everyone. And people talk about the likes of Jose Mourinho now and, and, and Pep being very personable with, with each player. But I think when you go back to, to the 80s, 90s, Peter Reid was, was one of the, the pioneers of that in the sense that he knew that the team spirit was everything. And we've done a lot together as a team, but he knew everyone's wife's names. He... he, he he just had a real understanding of, of keeping everyone together, whether you were the 11 starting players on that match day or 14, 15, 16, even the guys that didn't make the, the, the bench that day. He kept everyone really close-knit and it was a fantastic time to play for Sunderland Football Club. And I think if you ask the fans as well, it was a, a real, real special team to watch and support in, in those days. Were you on the team that lost to Chelsea in the opening day? To was it at Stamford Bridge? Stamford Bridge was like yeah, yes. We got we got spanked. I think it was like four or five nil, and that was our first game in the Premier League. And we kind of all got back on the bus because we we came up and we thought we were a, a really good team, and we kind of got put back down in our place and said, maybe this is not going to be as easy year as we think. So was the story true that he took you to the pub after that game? He took us to the pub. We used to go to the pub a lot, even after the the playoff final loss to Charlton. Um, we were devastated after that 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 result. I think it was four four, and then we lost on penalties. 
on the way back, we I think we stopped in a pub in Derby somewhere, and he just said, "Look, no more of these these sad faces, these long faces. Everyone's going to get in there, have a pint, and we're going to come back and smash the league next year." In which we did. But that was that was a usual tactic of of really to to get us into the pub, just especially when we're at, our heads were down. Coaches today complain about how, and I've done it myself hundreds of times. The players don't care enough. You want them to be more annoyed after defeats, but yes, you hear about stories like that, and it's is it not better for them to get up relatively quickly after games? Yeah, I go back to I think that's that's one of Reedy's best character traits was that he knew when the team were down and he understood he, he obviously retired as a player not long ago after coaching Man City and then us and he had a deep understanding after the games that we had to we had to snap out of it and whether it was a lot of players feeling down on themselves whether it's the striker missed a great chance or the goalkeeper had made a, a goalkeeping error he never individualized it. He said, look, we're going to get through this as a team and we're going to rebound. We're going to snap out of it. And he would use certain tactics like that or he would take the team out for a lunch, just a surprising team lunch after training and, and have a couple of bottles of wine. He would take us away for the weekend. Just certain specifics where he knew that the mood within the squad and when it needed re-triggering. And again, I think a lot of coaches veer away from that. They're scared of, of what might be seen from the outside public. And also, I don't think you could get away with that probably in the Premier League nowadays. As, as I said to you at the start of it, I was I always wanted the, you know, the Premier League in the 90s was, was the coolest thing for me. But yep. probably inside it, there was still the monotony of any profession where it's daily grind, etc., etc. Um, having the ability of intuition, knowing when to team take teams away and knowing when to just change the setting is a skill. We're moving away from that today. Yes. Well, you know what? You, you say we're moving away from it, but I still see teams, I think it was West Ham nearly two weeks ago that went on the little uh, trip to Miami. I think they, they, they were kind of pictured in on the beach and they just had that awful... Uh, situation where the fans started running on the field and trying to get at the owners and I see teams going away to Dubai or to Spain for, for a little mid-season break so I still think it's there but maybe not in the magnitude where, where really would take us at least once every two weeks or once a month away or out for a certain team team event And Do you think it's do you think as coaches today, so it's at the youth level, it's obviously a lot difficult. You can't you can't jump on a plane, but you can take a team bowling or you can take them for a meal or something like that. Um, do you think as as coaches, is there more of a distance today between players and coaches? Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and I, I I think you can see even in the youth um, game, the the university games, the. Even we play in a semi-pro uh, league up here in, in Toronto with, with my U19 team. And you can see certain teams that the players might not be as good quality as, as other teams you play against or whatever whatever league you're playing in. But you can see certain teams that are willing to, to actually die for their manager. And I think, or put it all out there for their manager. And I think that's where you look at a manager. And I always like to listen to certain stuff that managers or head coaches are saying on the sidelines as well to, to their players. And 
you can get a good grasp of, of whether the, the, the players respect that, that coach and whether they're willing to run for a Wolfram. And I think that's where a coach becomes very personable with his team. I think we get caught up in the tactics and and the wins and losses so much. But when a, when a, a head coach is very, very kind of personable with his team and understands his team and, and actually has an understanding that whether we win or lose, we're still going to be here next week and I'm still going to be your coach and I'm going to be here for something that's going on in your life or it's not just going to be around football. That's where you can see the, the teams that are, are really strong-minded, I think. Moving on then to your Toronto FC. Yes. What were the biggest differences between MLS and English football? Well, first moving over here... Um, there was obviously a big difference. Uh, moving to Toronto, it was an expansion team. So a team that had, that had just been kind of brought that year by MLSC, who, who are our owners, and they were bringing a, a professional team to Toronto for the first time um, in its history. And the buzz was, was fantastic around the city. There's a lot of football um, people around the city, a lot of different cultures, whether it be from Europe, um, whether it be from South America, Central America, and everyone was just happy to, to have a team to support in the city. Now, the league was still growing as well, and, and the caliber, the player caliber wasn't at its highest then, but for me to play in that first year at a new club where I'd had the experience of playing in England for some some, some great clubs with, with a huge historic side to them and, and coming to a team that, basically have never played a professional game before was, was a new experience for me and a, a real kind of exciting time in, in my career, especially coming towards the end of my career as well, Gary. What was the most difficult? Because obviously the level would have been a step down from the Premier League. Yes. Was it, Did you notice it more in as a centre forward? Was that more in the build-up? Was it the quality of of build-up play or was it the final, was it crosses? What, what was the most frustrating thing? For me, first of all, it was the the actual game understanding of of managing the game through the ninety minutes and and taking care of the ball. I think when you when you grow up in certain leagues, especially in Europe, uh, the majority of players, ninety nine percent of the players, are comfortable on the ball and they understand whether to retain the ball, to play forwards, or they they understand the triggers when we're on the the attack that we have a chance to go and score a goal and then the quality of the technique is obviously there. But here it was still behind in that sense. And you go back to having a mix of, of veteran players that have obviously played in North America for a long time or or young university players that have been brought in through the draft. And I have a, a lot of respect for, for head coaches that, that manage in those early years in the MLS because they had to try and of bring those players together and assemble a squad, but actually try and assemble a game plan as well. But it was very, very difficult for, for a player. Um, and I'm not saying I played at a high level, but to, to try and get a grasp of what we were actually trying to do on 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 the field. And and it, feel, it felt like sometimes we were just playing off the cuff, Gary. Was that lack of training time, lack of quality players? Yeah, I think even even some of the training sessions that we done when I first came over, there was no real specifics that we were working on. We'd done a lot of small-sided games, but 
when you when you kind of look at even what I try to do with, with my younger teams now and, and you look at a lot of other training sessions, I love watching different training sessions online from different coaches and at different various levels. There's always a, a meaning behind the training session. And I think it's only on a, a regen session a day after a game or a game prep session a day before a game. There's still certain nuances throughout the week that you're working specifically towards, whether it be a defensive phase or an attacking phase. And I just felt we, we didn't do any of that uh, as, as a professional team in the first year. Let's chat about the coaching side now. So yep. moving on to that side of the game, we're all we're all a product of our experiences to some extent. Yes. Who has influenced you the most? Well, you know what? Again, I was asked this the other day on Premier League TV and I said I've kind of taken little tidbits from, from every coach that, that I've played played for, the good and the bad, you know? And I go back to Ray Wilkins, who was, was a fantastic mentor for me back in my early days Jerry Francis even some of my my early youth team coaches there's little bits you can take from from every coach and in either their preparation their organization their man management skills on the field and off the field that I try to adapt to my own coaching philosophy and and I I was very lucky to play for for some fantastic uh, people and there was some huge influences throughout my career, even like late on, I worked for people at Toronto FC, academy directors and elder coaches that I really looked up to and they helped me in, in the long run. And I just, I couldn't specifically put the, put, put anyone as, as my, that one person. I was just lucky to work with, with a host of, of different guys, or it'd be Ray Wilkins, Pete Reed, um, Billy Davis at Preston was was very good as well. And you, you, as you said, you kind of take the good bits and the bad bits for some of the, the coaches that I didn't get on too well with, and and say maybe I I don't use that during my team talk, or maybe I don't use that phrase on on the training field because I know as a player how it felt when when that was kind of aimed at me or aimed at certain players. With the sad news last week of Ray Wilkins. I was, I just came in, I think it was the Wednesday or Thursday night and I was just online and I was just about to go to bed and I started reading a couple of articles. Yes. Two hours later, I was still reading just things from players, things about people who had been around him. And the majority, the thing that struck me was the majority of, of stories and insight about how nice a person he was. How, yes. how how did he impact around a football club? Because he seems to have done it at a high level just everywhere he's been. Well, he had such a persona around him, to be quite honest, Gary, that from the small details of the way he dressed, the way he carried himself, the way he spoke. Um, his banter was, was, was very, very good. Um, he could shut you down within a matter of seconds if if he thought you was being a little bit lippy, as he said. Um, he, he reminded me of Del Boy from Only Fools and Horses at times because he, he had such a, a humour about him, but he could cut you down uh, in, in a matter of seconds, as I said. But obviously his playing ability, and, and I got to work with him a few times, and the last time I got to work with him was at Millwall under, under Dennis Wise. He was his assistant then, and even... 
in those later stages, he was still out on the field with us training and playing and, and what a wonderful talent. Both feet, um, always thinking two, two passes ahead of the play and he would actually take the mick out of us at times in training and, and it was laughable because of this small kind of frail player that was just dominating training sessions and, and he was just a wonderful person not only to, to play alongside in training but also to listen to and very articulate with, with certain tactical elements that he wanted you to, to do during the game or an opponent you was playing against and I took it on board from when I was a young 16, 17-year-old boy at QPR to when I was a 30-year-old man playing for him at Millwall. You work with Aaron Venter at Toronto FC as an assistant. Yeah. How yeah. did he view the game differently with his Ajax background? Well, obviously he, he was very, very technical based with his, with his training methods and I liked Aaron as a, as a as a person very much. I, I had a lot of time for him. We had a lot of good talks. Obviously, played in Italy as well and spoke Italian very very well. He smoked like a trooper as well. He would put Alan McDonald to to. A good <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think Aaron's mistake, and I think he even admits it himself, is that he was trying to teach a new methodology within training and in games and. He didn't understand the, the, the demographics of the North American League or the, actually the North American player as well. And I just remember at times where we would go out onto a training session and he would do like literally 45 minutes to an hour of trying to teach the players how to, to pass and control the ball. And I think with younger players, you can probably get away with that to a certain degree, but with older professionals, kind of vets... As you know, some of the, the, the experienced pr professionals or older players would, would take that as a little bit of a, a kick to their to their confidence in saying, is he trying to teach us how to play football here? Where I knew where Aaron was coming from because he was brought in with the sense that he wanted to change the whole philosophy throughout the club. He wanted to bring that IX way to Toronto FC, but... As I said in, in my first year, the, the, the player actually quality and understanding of the game was a lot lower than, than we have in Europe. It's, it's definitely grown now in, in today's MLS, but when you're trying to teach an old dog new tricks, sometimes it do, doesn't go over too well. And I think he lost a lot of players, not only in, in certain specifics in training sessions and the way he, he was talking to him alongside his, his uh, assistant, Bob DeClerc, but also in games as well where we kept trying to play out of the back and you could actually see it watching from the sidelines. Teams were kind of, we, we called it waiting in the bushes, waiting for that first pass to come out from the goalkeeper to the defender. And we were trying to play through lines deep in our own half. And so many teams anticipated and punished us. And I felt sorry for Aaron in a way because he had the support of the club with, with whether it be on the financial side or, or trying to give him time to, to develop this philosophy. But as you know, it's, it's not a short-term fix when you're trying to, to, to bring that philosophy into a club. And you need a lot of time, a lot of patience as well. And, and, and in today's modern times, especially with, with head coaches, owners don't give you that, that long-term. Yeah, and even though we can all preach long-term, so much goes on the result, doesn't it? Because the players need the result to know 
whether that they should believe in it or not. Yeah, it's a, at all aspects, it's a result-driven industry now, especially at the professional side of things, Gary. And whether it be from the owners uh, wanting the team to pick up results and to get into the playoffs, um, the players looking at their contracts, if they're playing on a losing team and they're not getting results and they start questioning their own ability and questioning whether they're going to have a contract next year because they're playing for a bottom place team in the league and to actually going into the training session saying, why are we working on this again? We worked on this for the last month. It hasn't gotten us anywhere. We haven't improved as a team on Saturday. So there was a lot of of red flags going up and he was, to be quite honest, Aaron was trying to put out fires everywhere and I felt sorry for him in the end. Player development, the biggest topic of debate. Yeah. In youth soccer. Um, Let's start with the positives. What, what do you think we're getting better at or what are we doing a great job of in North America? I, I think we're very forward thinking as as, um, as a continent in, in US and in, in Canada here. I think we have a lot of good coaches um, from all walks of life, uh, whether you're an ex-pro or a teacher or someone that just loves the game. And I'm, I'm really a believer that just because you played the game at a high level doesn't make you a great coach. I think you have a certain understanding of the game, but that doesn't mean you can teach or, or actually um, educate the players. There's a different sense in, in coaching these days. And I feel that we're very forward thinking over here, not only on the field, but off the field as well. With be our, our strength, our uh, strength and conditioning, our sports science. Um, the cognitive side is getting very big in the game as well. And I think the actual, the actual love of the game is changing a lot. The, the younger generation, I think the game is more accessible on, on whether it be on TV or online, where a lot of, of, of younger players watch games now. So we're heading in the right way. But I still think that as coaches, we need to keep developing. We need to keep looking at ourselves and constantly uh, assess what we're doing, constantly try to improve, constantly try to, to learn different things because I believe that football is is a game that is world-renowned and everyone has a different opinion of it. There's no wrong way or right way to play the game and, and that's why it makes it such a, a fantastic game to watch all around the world. That would be then, what do you think we need to improve? Is it the coaching? I think the coaching definitely needs to, to be improved and definitely at the, the grassroots level. I think we have uh, a lot of volunteers willing to put the time in, but I think they need to be helped more in the sense of understanding the game or understanding how to to help certain players at, at, at the grassroots level. And then I think once we move on to to the youth level, and even university and, and academy level, there's good coaches within within those groups. There's very, very good coaches that have come up, have, have actually played against and worked alongside and, and watched as well. And I'm really impressed with, with some of the coaches that we have over it, but it's just the constant education and trying to improve yourself and assess yourself and, and don't just settle for where you are at the present day, you've always got to strive to improve as a coach. And I think your team will feed off that as well. You mentioned there about the, the bomba, was it? What the Italians call the centre-forward? The bomba, yeah. The yeah. Nine, yeah. 
So, centre forwards who can head a ball. Yourself and Les Ferdinand and that QPR team. <laughs> what, what a team that was. Um, it's a day in art, obviously. Yes. And it's, it's really strange for me coming over here to, to see players, younger players that have never headed the ball before, Gary. And I don't know whether it's stemmed from a young age where players are not allowed to, to head a ball in, in neither their U8s, U9s, U10s. But I see it even at the professional academy level where, where players are actually scared to head a ball and they're not heading the ball properly. And I think that's what actually hurts the individual as well. And I go back to something we're doing at Toronto FC here where we do position-specific training and, and, and we get the defenders out there and just working on certain positions and body positions when going to attack the ball, to head the ball, whether it be from a defensive goal kick that they're clearing or attacking a defensive corner kick or an offensive free kick they don't have the confidence to, to really engage and head the ball properly. They're, they're heading it with the wrong part of their head, so that's obviously going to hurt. Um, they're closing their eyes. The, the, the confidence and the momentum, the, the actual body position when they're going to attack the ball is all wrong. So we, we have to start doing a, a better job of that and, and not just blame the player, but understand that we have to work better at that as coaches as well. Yeah, I would. I believe that coaches turn their nose up at it because we're almost in such a possession phase, and we're yes. caught up. Uh, when I go watch youth training sessions, I never see players head the ball. And again, as you said, the, the game that we all love to watch is the tiki tac football that, that obviously Barcelona, Man City play, which is is frightening to watch at times, but. A big part of the, the, the game is, is heading the ball as well, Gary. You know, whether you're a defender, a midfielder, the ball's still in the air a lot. And how many headed goals do we see? I mean, company scored a fantastic goal at the weekend against Manchester United. And it's a big part of the game that I think we're neglecting a little bit. And again, it stems from coaching at a younger age, just getting the players comfortable. Um, even at a younger age, there's certain specifics that you, you can do with just a smaller ball, just just getting the actual technique better will help improve them and, and make the player more confident. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, last two questions. Best player played with? Oh, that's a tough one as well. Uh, best player played with? Mm. I think if I look at it as a, as a striker, um, and I go back to my Sunderland days, I, I have to say Kevin Phillips because of what he done in the Premier League and what he done for us as a team, but what he done for himself coming from the lower leagues. Uh, he started at Stevenage at a, an older age, thought his football career was was done. Then he went to Watford and, and done very well there, got his big move to, to Sunderland and finished top scorer, got himself into the England team, which was a fantastic achievement for him. So I have to to, to put my onus on, on him and, and what a fantastic achievement he, he he achieved in his career and playing alongside him. He was just an old school finisher, you know, just clinical with, with every term. He was right back at Southampton, wasn't he? When, he, when they released him, he was yeah. right back. So, yeah. he came, so he's not a born centre forward. So was there a lot of work on the training pitch with him? 
But that's the thing with him, Gary. He was he was a very natural finisher. And I think sometimes we look at younger players and we say, oh, he's a, he's a good striker, him. But they're kind of, for me, when I look at a natural finisher, it becomes very easy and the composure they're throwing, showing in front of goal is a natural talent to finish where you look at some strikers now, they're fighting at the finish or they're struggling to get their shot off. And um, he, he was an excellent player to watch, not only with his movement, but anywhere in and around the box. He finished with ease, and as I said, he was a natural finisher. Best player played against? Oh, best player. So I think early on in my career, I come up against the likes of, of Colin Hendry, who was um, Braveheart for Scotland, who yeah. playing early in my QPR days, didn't give me a touch of the ball and was a very aggressive defender. Uh, goal playing against Marcel Desailly and, and Alessandro Nesta was a, a good lesson for me as well. And, he, and even coming back home later on in my career, early on in his career, I, I've got to say John Terry was a, a fantastic defender as well. Proper hard-nosed old-school defender. Mm. Good in possession as well. Yeah, not too bad. Scored his odd goal here and there as well. <laughs> is, is that one of the, I suppose, one of the difficulties of being a centre-forward today is that that whenever these top, top players, you're, you, know, you don't get a moment's rest because of the possession phase now. You're having to do defensive work. Well, it's a big part of um, of the strikers nowadays is is that you're the first line of, of the defence. You know, you, you've got to set the line whether you're starting with a high block, a medium block, and your your job is not only to, to link up the play when we have the ball, but your ball, your job is to actually win the ball back or to try and channel the, the, the pressure to one side and hopefully we can get the ball back and play it into you. But uh, we try to teach it with, within our academy that, that you've got to work hard for the team. There's also a sense of that your your other 10 players are seeing that you're working hard. You're not just standing up there waiting for the ball. And I think they respect you more as a striker. But it's it's a, it's a different role now for, for these younger strikers coming in. They have to work hard. They have to be fit. And they have to they put the team aspect on, first of all, rather than just scoring goals. Mm. First class, first class. Danny, thank you so much. That was brilliant. No worries, Gary. Anytime. Thanks so much to Danny for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. Ex-pros sometimes get a, a bad reputation of wanting to take shortcuts through their coaching. And we see in the almost what the media portrays or what stories come up where if it's a Jermaine Genius or Danny Murphy, you know, people should be getting their licenses easier or quicker than what they are but I found for the most part any ex-pros that I've been uh, been around in coach education or who are on social media giving insight towards coaching the 99.999% of them are are absolutely essential to coach development because their insight to working at the highest level what it takes the drive and I think Sometimes as, as youth coaches, as college coaches, in, in the States especially, we sometimes forget how difficult it is. The chances that these, these people have of making it is almost slim to none. So the resilience and the focus and the character and the sacrifice and the commitment that they have to go through for 25, 30 years of their life is, is phenomenal. How can that not impact what we're trying to produce with players today? So I think we should be a little bit more open-minded. And when we come across people like Danny who are 
willing to give their time and their insight and his experiences are so so unique I mean to play in in Serie A to play in the Premier League and to play in the MLS what, what a wide range of experiences to work with Aaron Vinter at at Toronto FC I just love listening to people who have different who pick things up from different people because I like I said at the start of the episode I think that's what coaching is about uh, and I'm also intrigued and slightly fascinated by what do those people take away like for example Danny has played with with very very confrontational managers like Megson and Dennis Wise and Billy Davis but when you when you listen to his insight on football you you hear that he's very much a a relationship guy you know and that's why I wanted to ask him about Ray Wilkins because that's all I've heard from about Ray Wilkins and you can hear that you know even though Danny has has been in in tough tough changing rooms tough environments he still values that has not molded him into be a certain player or a certain coach he has been strong enough to stand by his his philosophy if you want to call it or his character or his personality whatever you want to call it he's strong enough to know what that is and that is you know being a approachable and and enthusiastic and a good person and and I find that really really inspiring uh, whenever you're talking to people who have worked at the highest level so uh, thanks so much for Danny for that there and and his time was was absolutely brilliant he was he could talk all day as you could hear him so absolutely first class so thanks so much for listening please 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 I say it every week please do it this week if you haven't done it please give it a, a, a little rating on iTunes little tweet out give Danny a shout out on Twitter if you enjoyed it something about it that you liked that you that you had questions about or that you had talking points about there's a lot of good work on social media there's people putting a lot of good stuff out and it's getting I think it's going where it needs to go for a large part it's not just sharing training sessions or ideas we're now asking coaches about experiences and some people are beginning to open up that's what I'm starting to see so it's fun it's good uh, keep it going and bring it. Bring Modern Soccer Coach in the loop um, check out the website got some things coming up very very soon so thanks for all your support and I will speak to you soon bye thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach podcast for more coaching topics sessions and resources head on over to Coach Kerneen on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com